Welcome to Making of a Historian, a podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And today I'm going to be continuing in a mini-series which is basically going over a course that I might teach if I were actually a professor called Social Life in the Anthropocene. The idea is to look at urban history through the lens of environmental history. The general argument is that much of the stuff that people talk about when they talk about modern urban culture can be understood uh, through changes in organization and energy usage. And this is a mini-series, so if you are jumping in here in the middle, I encourage you to go back to episode one of Social Life in the Anthropocene, just so you can get a sense of what has been happening, and also so that you can listen to it in its proper order and tell me whether it actually makes sense, which is super important. One of the things I'm worried about here is that in taking a non-traditional perspective on a lot of questions about modernity and urbanization, I might be missing out on the main story. I might assume that people know all the stuff that they actually need to know to make this story make sense. In the last two episodes, I laid out the outline for this lecture series. The big change, I argued, can be understood as breaking from the Malthusian trap. That is, people finally in the 18th and 19th century had different limits on population and thus urban density and so on and so forth. I then discussed the cultural implications of this through looking at food. First, looking at how there was an international division of labor with producing particular kinds of plant crops, and then looking at how uh, removing constraints on food consumption led there to be developments of different kinds of cultural discourses around eating. Today, I'm going to be looking, uh, continuing to look at this trade in international material commodities and how it affects culture by looking at how global things got really intimate. These global things, I argue today, really affect how people see themselves and how people feel. And I'm going to do this uh, by looking at two classes of uh, urban global commodity, drugs and clothes. First, let's talk about drugs. Drug use might be one of those rare human universals. Everywhere that human beings can find plants or chemicals that will alter their you know, mental states, they use it, and they use it in interesting ways, wrapped up often in ritual and meaning and all of those uh, great things. In the modern global material world that I'm talking about in this lecture series, there is, however, something that we can constitute as an apocal change in drug use. And maybe we can think about it like this. Let's say you live in a city in the 19th century, London or Boston or Philadelphia or, hey, even Sydney, Australia, and you want to get high. You actually have an incredibly wide range of options for the different kinds of psychoactive substances that you can indulge in. Maybe the greatest amount of psychoactive variety that has ever happened to people in the history of the world. Not only can you get drunk, 
uh, but you can also smoke tobacco, drink coffee, inject heroin, snort cocaine, eat sugar and chocolate, and also you could start to indulge in a new class of synthetic drugs like methamphetamines and things like that, chloroform. And you could do these things relatively cheaply. And it wasn't like these were being policed too much either. Many were available from the local corner pharmacist. And I didn't even talk about the wide range of tropical uh, plants that were known to be psychoactive, like Datura, that, you know, if you hang around with druggies in the 21st century enough, you'll hear talked about in hushed tones. So to talk about the rise of this kind of druggy modernity, I want to talk about three things. Coffee, opium, and for fun, the development of IPA, uh, maybe my generation's favorite drug. So first I'm going to talk about coffee. Coffee was an old world plant. Uh, it was grown in, people think, originally Ethiopia or Yemen. But it wasn't discovered, or at least put into the global commodity trade, until maybe the 14th century. It didn't get to England really until around 1600, but once it did get to Europe, it got increasingly popular. First amongst uh, groups of curious uh, upper-class aristocrats who wanted to show how cool they were by demonstrating their knowledge of foreign drugs and plants, but it quickly became a popular beverage, served on the street at first, and then served in particular specialized buildings known as coffee houses. The London Coffee House became, after its founding in 1652, a hotbed of news and discussion that a ton of people uh, have identified as one of the precursors to modern democratic discussion. It's the early public sphere. In the coffee house, people go to talk about the news and drink coffee, and while there, they for a while ignore all of the stuff besides the stuff that they're talking about. A person in the coffee house can talk about politics, which is usually the domain of the king or the state or politicians. They can talk about politics and the stuff that they say ideally is judged only on its own merits, not on the position of the person talking. Of course, this is an ideal, it never actually happened, but rather than talking about this discursive ideal of what's happening in the public sphere of the coffee house, I want to talk about coffee. When these people were first drinking coffee in the coffee house, yeah, they talked about how fun it was to discuss things with strangers, but more often than that, they talked about the peculiar effects of coffee itself. Because before coffee, if you wanted to socialize or do business with or talk with a person who wasn't particularly close to you, you would do it in a place that served alcohol, an inn or an alehouse. And from a lot of sociological research, we know that these weak ties uh, are incredibly important for making social networks uh, that are big enough to allow people to have, you know, demonstrable social capital. And so these weak ties met in inns and alehouses, and they would drink uh, beer while they talked, and after three or four beers, they'd get too drunk to talk anymore. With coffee, say these early coffee house habitués, it's different. 
With coffee, they can talk to people all night, drink coffee after coffee after coffee, and instead of getting drunk, they just get more awake. It's a wonderful drug for a lot of what we think of as a kind of urban caricature, a middle-class worker, a person who deals with thoughts, a person who has self-restraint, a person who is not drunk, but rather incredibly sober. And I think that this spread of coffee and other caffeinated beverages like chocolate or tea, particularly forcing out, uh, in turn, alcoholic beverages, might be one of these missing elements to what we think of as modernity. Because when you think of your daily life, a lot has to do with your intentional caffeine dosage. When I am uh, having a tough day, when I have to do a lot of work, I will drink a lot of coffee. I will meet out my coffee dosage over the day so that I can stay awake longer. When I'm having a relaxed day, I don't drink as much. And most people that I know who are uh, white collar workers drink coffee and have some kind of relationship between coffee and work where they intentionally regulate their dosage of caffeine to do work. And in that way, I think that we might understand the modern person, the modern urban person, not just as a human being walking around through the world using all these things, but rather a human being on caffeine, a human brain being who has drank a lot of coffee. Now let's talk about maybe the opposite of coffee, opium. And there's two halves to this story about opium. The first is the story of how opium was pushed towards uh, people in China for mercantilist reasons. The second is the story of how Europeans, particularly British people, got a taste for opium themselves. So there's a problem with the system of international trade, and it was a problem ever since Europe got connected up with it in maybe the 13th century. And that problem is that Europeans had great desire for a lot of the stuff that was made in China and India. Um, Europeans wanted the tea and the porcelain and the drugs and the spices and the cotton and the liqueurware and the silks that were made in India and China. That's not the problem. The problem was that India and China didn't really have much demand for any of the stuff that Europe made. So there wasn't a ton to trade. The solution involved colonialism. After Europe colonized the Americas, they found massive sources of silver, particularly in Peru and Argentina. And this fueled a new cycle of global trade where silver was shipped from the Americas to Europe, and then Europe shipped silver to Asia in exchange for all of these nice goods. However, this resulted in a drain of specie, a drain of coinage from Europe itself. And in the 19th century, this process was still going on. There still wasn't a ton of stuff that Europe had that China wanted. When a uh, British commercial delegation went to the Emperor of China in the 19th century and showed them all of the awesome stuff that they had, all of the cottons and the clocks and all of the products of the Industrial Revolution, the compasses and the astrolabes, the stuff that we think of as unimaginably cool and as 
through its very amazingness, changing the way that modern people produce and consume stuff. When he presented all this stuff to the Emperor of China, the Emperor of China shrugged and went, we don't have any use of that. So there was a problem. And the problem was greater because of British people's demand for caffeine. Um, in the 18th century, Britons, by and large, shifted in their tastes from coffee to tea. And the biggest tea-growing regions of the world were in China. And there wasn't a ton of stuff that Britons could trade China for in exchange for tea. The solution was opium. British imperial uh, commercial interests would grow opium in Afghanistan and India and then trade it to China in exchange for tea. But as the uh, import of tea increased from about uh, 4,000 boxes of opium in 1820 to, in 1839, 40,000 boxes of opium, Chinese officials grew concerned about what opium was doing to the Chinese people, and they tried to force out the trade of opium. Britain didn't let this happen, and it led to a pair of wars uh, in 1839 to 1842, and then from 1856 to 1860, which are known as the Opium Wars. The outcome of this war is that through force of arms, Britain uh, not only got a bunch of territorial claims like Hong Kong uh, and then claims to treaty ports where it could trade, but it forced the trade of opium into China, and opium became incredibly popular. Uh, you know, diffusing down from the upper classes and then into the working classes where it became something that almost everybody smoked. And this allowed for the trade of tea to Europe on much more favorable terms. Britons sold China Indian opium so that Britons could drink Chinese tea with their breakfast. This sober, clarifying, ultimately modern drink of the caffeinated beverage was originally fueled by the international trade in narcotic drugs. The second part of this story is about how opium was consumed in Britain, because opium was not merely pushed on people in Asia, opium was a great drug. It makes you feel really good, and it's quite cheap, and it was used increasingly uh, in the home itself. Opium was an important part of the 19th century medicine cabinet. There was probably some opium in every single home, and because it made people feel so good, it was prescribed for a huge variety of issues, um, from colicky babies to uh, toothache to indigestion to uh, incontinence. But having opium in every single house so widely available led to a huge amount of addiction. We actually don't know how deep this addiction went. It could have been incredibly widespread because people didn't identify it as a social problem, so it's hard to find sources. To figure it out, we have to rely on, you know, little scraps of evidence that we find in biographical sources. Uh, in learning that people got a taste for opium and then just kept on drinking it again and again and again. And it was actually incredibly common. 
Working class people would often use it to curb the pain of work, especially when they couldn't get enough money for beer because it was available at local pharmacists. Mothers who needed to work might give uh, babies opium to sleep. Uh, the Factory Commission in 1834, for example, suggested that one third of all of the infant deaths in Manchester was due to opium overdose. But opium wasn't just confined to the lower classes. George IV used uh, opium to calm himself down after drinking binges. Florence Nightingale uh, used intravenous morphine to curb back her chronic back pain. And there were, you know, fancy poets like Coleridge and De Quincey who uh, used opium to curb pain from, you know, chronic uh, 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 pain problems, but also to transport themselves into new spaces of consciousness. Even Charles Dickens was addicted to opium in the end of his life. And there was a heavy component of gender as well, because women were often in charge of minor medical concerns in the house. They were the ones who went to the pharmacy to buy the drugs, and they were the ones who were in charge of the magical medicine cabinet. And so there may have been quite a bit of invisible uh, opium addiction amongst women, but it's really hard to tell. Finally, let's talk about uh, my generation's favorite drug, India Pale Ale. And I want to talk about this because it shows how a lot of what we think of as particularly European actually has at its root interactions with the wider world. So India Pale Ale was ale that was brewed particularly so that it could survive the long trip from London over to India where it was drank. And uh, to do this, it included a lot of hops, um, both more hops in brewing and then dry hops in the barrel of beer uh, because hops are a preservative. You might ask, why didn't people brew beer in India? Well, that was because of the weirdness of trade laws by the company that regulated Indian trade, the East India Company. They, people actually couldn't brew beer legally in India, but people going over India could have 56 tons of goods uh, shipped from England over to India to sell on their behalf. So officers started to ship beer from England over to India to sell it to other officers to make a little bit of money. And one brand soon got a monopoly on this beer trade. Uh, it is Hodson, which has a silent G in it. And this became kind of emblematic of the British colonial experience. When officers of the East India Company, you know, finished their tours of duty and moved back to London, often with massive amounts of wealth, they drank this India pale ale as a way of reminding themselves about, you know, their experiences. In the Oriental Club in Hanover Square, uh, which was pitched towards these returning grandees of the East India Company, India pale ale was served along of, with curries to give people the sense of the world that they had worked in. And then in the 1830s, Hodson's lost its monopoly on the India Pale Ale business, and there were new companies like Bass and Allsop that started to get into the domestic India Pale Ale business. And what they did is they had a new form of marketing where they sold bottled beer. And bottled beer was this new technological invention that was considered uh, to be much 
uh, more uh, uh, reliable than beer sold in kegs. I mean, these days we think of, you know, draft beer as superior in all ways to bottled beer, but back then bottled beer offered a distinct advantage over draft beer, and that was it couldn't be adulterated. You opened a bottle of beer and that was it. And so people buying bottled beer with the label of the manufacturer directly on it, often with a cool logo, they were assured that they were drinking beer straight from the brewery. And the IPA spread first in Britain and then all around the world. It became a mark of British imperialism. It was sold in Turkey, Syria, Greece, Egypt, Jerusalem, Russia, the Caucasus, and Canada. And now, of course, it has a different kind of cultural connotation, not the, you know, roving imperialist, but rather the uh, sophisticated urban hipster. Now let's talk about the second part of this story, clothing. I'm going to deal with this uh, by separating out my discussion on clothing in two different parts, quite similar to how I arranged the discussion last episode. I'm going to first talk about production and then move on to talk about consumption. So on the production side, if I was talking about the history of clothing in a much more traditional class on these topics, I would talk about cotton manufacturing and the Industrial Revolution. Cotton was one of the leading sectors of the Industrial Revolution, and I would talk about uh, this leapfrogging development of spinning and weaving technology and mention stuff about cotton gins and, uh, you know, spinning jennies. And I would also discuss the development of factories and on how this changed the way that women and men worked. I might also discuss about the international division of labor in making cotton and how cotton had to be made with sweated labor. People were forced into farming it because it was so difficult, so labor intensive, and how this moved from slave colonies in the Caribbean to the slave south in America, and then once slavery was abolished after the Civil War, uh, to the global south, Egypt and India. And that is a very important story and a story that I will tell in another podcast. But this story leaves out half of the process of cotton manufacturing because all of these factories do not produce clothing. They produce cotton cloth. To turn cotton cloth into clothing, you need to sew it. And sewing could take place in two different places. First, it could take place in a tailor's shop, but more often than not, it happened in the home by women. So when we think about the history of cotton, we have to imagine it ending not with people on the street wearing cotton clothing, but rather with women in homes doing vast amounts of highly skilled domestic labor, sewing cotton cloth into clothing. 19th century women were great sewers. They made samplers. They knew how to whip up a dress or a shirt, how to darn a sock. They could make complicated textile goods from incredibly basic patterns. They were a huge reservoir of incredibly highly skilled labor that is usually ignored from the story of industrialization because this labor took place in the home and it did not take place within the market. And most of this labor was done by hand. 
The sewing machine was not invented until 1851, and it was only 10 years later that the sewing machine could actually make curved stitches. And even then, the sewing machine was confined to lower quality goods. Higher quality goods would still be done by hand. And even after clothes were made, they got dirty. And this dirt was solved through, again, domestic female labor that really, really frequently falls out of the story. I mean, one of the reasons why it gets dirty is because at this time in Britain, there's so much coal being burnt that this, you know, the city air is actually dank and dark and bits of soot will get on clothing and make them really dirty really, really quickly. But cleaning happened again in the home through female labor. Oftentimes, uh, laundry was uh, outsourced to laundresses who were very poor. So when we think about the production and the upkeep of clothing, I really want to emphasize that this is not simply a technological uh, development of factories and machines and coal, but also a development of the division of labor, the development of women working at home, creating new kinds of goods uh, for consumption. And after this explosion in the cheapness of fabric, there is a new kind of consumption around clothing that arises in cities in the 19th century. The thing about these new cities that we're going to bump into again and again is that it creates a paradox of identity. In the city, you are alone. No one knows you. You're kind of invisible, but you're also in the crowd. You're deeply visible. You're a member of a mass whose identity is fixed almost instantly from a bunch of telltale signs, namely around clothing. And like many things in the 19th century, this uh, development of clothing is articulated in two different ways, first as an art and then as a science. And similarly, this division often happens around uh, what we might think of as cleavages and identity. Here, the division is made on lines of gender. Men's fashion turned into a science, and what's known with dress historians as the Great Renunciation. Men's clothing got boring. Instead of competing on things like, you know, floridity and, you know, elegance and style, men's clothing increasingly became kind of boring, and people would compete merely on very subtle distinctions of cut and quality of fabric. Similar to how three-piece suits right now are these highly skilled, incredibly expensive, but very boring and rather monotonous goods. On the other hand, women's fashion became an art. It was ostentatious, a thing of display and spectacle. Women dressed up in these often, you know, ostentatious get-ups, would go out to shop for clothes in public in new kinds of spaces like department stores that were specifically built for a new kind of spectative buying and selling. And these new kinds of clothing styles spread in all of the places that were, you know, getting connected up to this new cycle of production and consumption. Uh, one example of this is how in the British colonial state in India, the pith hat became basically like a mark of caste for the colonizers. M colonial men would wear the pith hat and nobody else would. 
And similarly, natives uh, who wanted to deal in the public sphere of the colonizing regime would often adopt the clothing styles of the colonizers, the same way that they would often go to schools made by the colonizers and learn the language of the colonizers. And this was the beginning of colonial dress being taken up by ambitious folks. As late as the early 20th century, for instance, village headmen in some islands in Indonesia wore the dress of 18th century Dutch people. And today, I mean, today, this process is incredibly clear. When you look at a picture of people, say, at the G8 summit, you will see all of them, all of the men, wearing three-piece suits which to this day is the uniform of the business class. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Making of a Historian. I have to thank Jonathan Lear for the music and Duncan Barton for the image. If you like the show, rate us and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, do all those things that you do with things that you like on the internet. And I will see you guys later this afternoon uh, where I will be talking about new organizations and new ways of work. Thanks very much for listening.